Two more January 6th hearings are in the books. Six live witnesses testified and over a dozen depositions were played. All Republican witnesses, conservative witnesses, witnesses who worked for Donald Trump and all saying Trump violated the law, except of course for John Eastman, Trump's lawyer who pled the fifth 100 times and we saw that video. Popak, there are some new revelations and it seems that based on what we've learned, could Trump himself be charged with attempted murder? I mean, it seems that that's what he was saying regarding Mike Pence. So let's break that down and talk about that. A federal judge denies Steve Bannon's motion to dismiss the contempt of Congress charges brought against him by the DOJ. And his trial is set to begin next month. Steve Bannon files a motion to exclude evidence of the actual insurrection. But Popak, I thought Bannon said it wasn't really that bad of a thing and that we should, this was a celebration. So what's he worried about? Obviously, we know. The Not So Proud Boys terrorist organization asked for a continuance of their trial from late in the summer in August to about December. They also seek a venue change from Washington, D.C. to Florida. Let's break down, Popak, why they're making that request. Pocket pardons. You and I get asked this all the times. What are they? Did Trump grant them? If he did grant pocket pardons, what are their implications? Are pocket pardons constitutional? We will talk about that. And more evidence emerges showing that Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was in communication with John Eastman, the man who pled the fifth 100 times. And let's just be blunt here. She was basically one of the leaders of the insurrection. Uh, And the January 6th committee would like a word with Ginny Thomas. Let's also talk about some Supreme Court decisions. Let's just talk about one on this uh, podcast today. Let's talk about one in California, a way that uh, California employees would get around arbitration provisions. This was rejected in an eight to one decision by the Supreme Court and a Google class action settled for $118 million, a gender discrimination, female employees getting $118 million. If this class action is approved, Michael Popak, we have an action packed, uh, court case packed, legal packed episode of Legal AF. Great to see you today. You too. I'm breathless. Uh, oh, you and I, again, we're doing that cut down. You know, we start with just everybody knows what goes into this. We, we start with 20 or 30 stories that we're following closely during the week. Of course, Jan 6 took a lot of the oxygen out of the room for us as we, for the Midas Media Network, uh, do commentary for it. But there's other things going on that we have to keep our eye on the ball and not lose sight of and bring it to our Midas Mighty and Legal AFers and you just gave us the top six consequential stories that you and I picked for our audience for today. I want everyone also to put on their radar the fact that the Supreme Court will be issuing more opinions next Tuesday and Thursday. So this podcast is being recorded June 18th, 2022. And so expect massively consequential decisions happening on June 21 and on June 23rd. And we're talking about 18 cases that remain to be decided. And these are the cases that we've talked about on this podcast, the case that will likely be overturning 
Roe v. Wade uh, and the rights established by Roe v. Wade and Casey um, cases on the Second Amendment, which will likely uh, expand significantly uh, the right of individuals to bear arms with unfettered regulation just to basically run around with guns. I mean, so we'll see the expansion of the Second Amendment there. Cases on climate change and religion in schools. And just by putting those topics up, we could pretty much you pretty much know where the Supreme Court is going to land on the issue um, on climate change. They're not going to take the pro climate change side on religion and schools. They're going to likely make rulings that would make religion more uh, uh, prevalent in public schools. That's the trend that they've been uh, obviously taking. So we will be following those decisions as they happen and giving alerts there. But Michael Popak, why don't you start by uh, taking us through just this? Why don't you take the Google case and explain the settlement there? And I'll briefly talk about this PAGA settlement. I think that's a good split because you practice regularly in California. Um, and we've, you and I have been involved with packet cases in the past, but let's start with Google because they, they you know, they've had a um, good week for justice, terrible week for Google. They already settled $100 million case earlier in the week uh, related to their use of biometrics without having disclosed it in a class action. But this one goes to the heart of what both what you and I do for a living when we're not podcasting and to gender and equity equality in America. Um, a very good class action law firm that you've talked about before on this on this podcast brought in 2017 a class action suit on behalf of all uh, female um, employees of Google who, both upon hiring, were ranked lower than their male counterparts and therefore got initial compensation that was lower than them, and throughout their careers as a result did not get the bonuses and compensation that their male counterparts with the equivalent um, pedigree and credentials received. And the statistics that they did, and this is how you do it in a gender uh, equal pay case, is that you actually get from the um, company, if you're the plaintiff's lawyers, a download of all of their data related that they have to keep related to pay and gender and positions and titles and credentials. And you can see, you and I have been involved with these cases, you can see gender equity and disparity in pay pop out as soon as you see the statistics. And in the case of Google, a female with the same credentials as her male counterpart sitting next to her was making on average $17,000 a year less than the male. (laughs) There was no dispute about that. Google had some defenses, and of course, they didn't admit liability in the settlement. But the settlement is $118 million plus a three-year independent monitor who's going to monitor Google's practices, look at all of the equity data for new hires. Also, in response to this lawsuit, which is not part of the technical settlement that the court is going to approve or not approve on June 21st, Google on its own, but in the face of the lawsuit in 2020, raised the pay for thousands and thousands of female employees voluntarily, but in the face of the lawsuit. So, um, and they got an additional, um, it looks like that part of it was another 5 million, almost $5 million in pay increases 
plus this 118 million, plus three years of having a monitor basically sit in your HR department to make sure that all your future hires and how people are treated for bonuses and other things is treated equally. And so this is a real big win for women in the workplace because Google's not the only one doing this. And now the signal is out there that you better settle cases if you have, and you better do an internal review, look in the mirror, which is what companies do, and, and make sure that you don't have a gender equity problem. And if you do, you better fix it, or a big bad plaintiff's law firm is going to come along and take a few hundred million dollars or a billion dollars off of you. You know, what's interesting about this case, Popak, though, is that it's a gender discrimination case that was litigated You know, with it was this one was filed in a state court, but that was filed in the courts. There um, was not any arbitration provisions here. Um, and that's an important point to point out that the reason that there wasn't, though, um, you know, as, as I looked into it, Popak, was that uh, within Google itself, um, and large corporations, there's been movements by employees uh, to uh, not allow their corporations or to object to their uh, the companies they work for putting arbitration provisions within their contracts. You know, about 60 million Americans, this is the stat, um, have signed forced arbitration provisions. And many of you listening, if you work for a private employer in a non-unionized setting, you've likely signed an arbitration provision with your employer and you may not realize it. It's probably in your I employee have handbook. Yeah, it's, I it's, have one. It's probably probably in your employee handbook. When you click just I accept, you're you're signing arbitration provisions. And this prevents you from, you know, having a day in court, but it allows you to adjudicate your claims in a private arbitration setting before a uh, retired judge or a retired lawyer. But here this case went through uh, the normal kind of class action process. Um, Google filed some motions to dismiss, but they were very technical grounds about what constitutes the class and the years. Um, you know, and one of the things too that corporations have found actually, while arbitrations were supposed to be cheaper, actually doing individual one-off cases within arbitrations could cost a few hundred thousand dollars. Um, just to litigate the actual cost of the arbitration. So if you do that writ large with thousands and thousands of people, before you even deal with the actual payouts that would be owed, you know, in a settlement or in a judgment, you may be paying hundreds of millions of dollars for the cost of arbitration alone. And one thing I'd mention is you know, there was a case, a seminal Supreme Court case called Walmart v versus Dukes. This case was in 2011. It was a case in which a the Supreme Court ruled that a group of roughly 1.5 million women uh, who worked at Walmart could not file a gender discrimination case because it didn't meet the class action requirements for having common and typical claims. And this Walmart v. Dukes case was really the death knell to gender discrimination, you know, style class action cases. Um, you know, and then you layer on that the arbitration provisions um, that were taking place. And so it's just very interesting to, to me, Michael, that in light of Walmart v. Dukes, how this uh, law firm was able to utilize a California law, yeah. get around the arbit, you know, there was no arbitration provision, which could have been a death knell, number one. 
Number two, using California's Equal Pay Act, a very specific law to find this kind of commonality and to push for this relief on a class-wide basis, I thought was just very good well, lawyering. Let me, let me give you, I agree with you. Let me give you two softballs back to you. One, um, do you think that if, um, do you think Google would have taken pay equity and pay disparity seriously in their workplace had there not been the ability to thread the needle and for these lawyers to have brought a state court claim um, on behalf of a class action that was certified a year ago? Do you think we would have seen anything close to the result if they're not if there had not been a class action brought on these issues? No, I mean, you know, it's why the class action as a remedy, though, is so important and why, uh, you know, plaintiffs lawyers, but civil rights lawyers fight for this remedy, because when you are able to uh, bring together a group of similarly situated individuals, the power of the of the class is significantly more than the power of the individual. And when a corporation can divide and conquer uh, the, it, you know, the individual employees, you're not likely to get this outcome. So here's the tension that you're going to pick up next in the packet discussion. The tension is that while the federal courts and the Supreme Court are OK with class actions as a vehicle to be brought to remediate and remedy injustice, they are big, big time supporters of arbitration, which is really a pro corporation vehicle. So much so, wait till you start talking about the Alito decision next, this tension that the Supreme Court is in love with arbitration and will defend it against really almost anything in its path and the role of the class action in society to remediate things that an individual and one lawyer can't can't come to grips with environmental disasters what you know dirty water polluted water from a chemical plant um causing massive injuries in a community pay and equity that we just talked about products liability cases where a product damages somebody that's that is what class actions were invented to do. It attracts high caliber lawyering who get compensated to represent a mass of people who have the same or similar injuries. When you break them down, it's divide and conquer. And this is that tension that you're going to talk about next that the Supreme Court, having fallen in love with arbitration, does never seems to resolve in favor of the little guy. Agreed completely, Popak. And so in California in 2004, the California Labor and Workforce Development Agency, the LWDA, um, which is authorized to assess and collect civil penalties against employers for certain violations of provisions of the labor code, were assisted by the California legislature, which basically said the LWDA lacks sufficient resources to enforce the labor code. So the legislature enacted something called the private the private attorney generals act or PAGA, which took effect in 2004 and PAGA allowed individual employees 
who were violent, who were alleging violations of the labor code, you know, that that they experienced to basically bring these class action claims and to recover on behalf, as the statute says, the private attorney generals act to basically act as private attorney generals and to sue employers for violations of the uh, labor code, not just on their own behalf, but on behalf of all of the other employees who worked for that employer. And what the PAGA statute said is that there would be civil penalties and the default penalty was about $100 per employee per pay period for an initial violation, $200 per pay period for subsequent violations. And then there would be attorney's fees as well. And so when you would be able to recover all of this uh, money against the employer for violating the labor code, 75% of what was recovered would go back to the state, 25% would go to uh, the lawyer and to the and to the class for recovering the, this fee. So you'd get to keep 25% of the fee. And what this was, what was able to do is this was kind of viewed as an end runaround also arbitration provisions um, because you were acting as an arm of the state or agents of the state uh, where California courts had always interpreted this PAGA statute is that it would be against public policy to have any provision in your employment agreement that would basically waive PAGA or prevent or force PAGA into an arbitration. Um, and so these PAGA claims were a way around arbitration and that individuals who brought these PAGA claims would bring their individual claims as well as California courts interpreted it into California courts and not into arbitrations. Well, the corporations challenged this provision in a case called Viking River Cruises versus Moriana. This case went to the Supreme Court. And what the Supreme Court just ruled this past week is that if you're alleging PAGA claims, inherently what you're alleging is still your own individual claim, your own employment and labor code claim. And therefore, if you are bringing your own labor violation claim, that your own claim should go to a private arbitration if there's an arbitration provision in your agreement. And because you you have a remedy to go to the arbitration, you really can't bring a representative action on behalf of an entire class because your individual claims have this remedy and therefore no class action. So the bottom line of this case is that these labor violations in California are not going to really be able to be brought anymore the way they were before as class actions as a result of this decision. Now, there was some interesting infighting in this decision. It was an eight to one decision. Um, believe it or not, the one who was against this ruling was Clarence Thomas. And Clarence Thomas just believes that states should be able to make up whatever rules they want to make. And let me be clear. Clarence Thomas is not doing this because he supports the employee's rights in this specific case. What Clarence Thomas is basically saying is, I think states can basically make whatever rule that they want to basically not allow anyone to do to, to litigate if they want to. So even though he sided here with apparently the employee, it was not a pro-employee decision by Clarence Thomas in this Pagan decision. It was a pro-state sovereignty, states' rights. Uh, exactly. exactly. Yeah. But here we're going to have less arbitrations, less employee rights. But you have, you know, 
eight other Supreme Court justices who were basically, you know, who, who were united. You know, they they took different approaches to how they got to the outcome. And the uh, judges appointed by Democrats were basically saying, look, California's the way you wrote the statute in California wasn't great. Go back and rewrite the statute to create a, a different way it, it, that you can give it, employees standing. It, it's another example. And there's about a dozen of them over the last five years where the Supreme Court goes back and chastises California, California legislature, California courts, and the Ninth Circuit and says, you got it wrong when it comes to arbitration. They just, there's this constant fighting. And of course, in rock, paper, scissor, the Supreme Court beats California in, in every time. But I, I give it up to California. They keep trying to preserve the rights of employees and collective action and representative action, like the private attorney general statute. And the Supreme Court keeps saying Federal Arbitration Act prevails over everything. In fact, I thought one last line on this, then, of course, we'll move on. <clears throat> Alito says in his because Alito wrote the opinion, uh, you know, but not great when everybody's siding with Alito on a majority opinion. I hope that doesn't hold for abortion. But here Alito says that there is he's so concerned about the equal treatment. Think about this, Ben. He's so concerned about this concept of equal treatment of arbitration against litigation, because he says that in the past, state court judges especially were against arbitration and always ruled against it. And so there needs to be equal treatment. He's only concerned about equal treatment when it comes to arbitration. He's not concerned about equal treatment when it comes to human beings and discrimination. But, you know, th this this is the problem with the supermajority right wing or what they refer to as the conservatives. They only care about contracts. They only care about um, the, uh, the statutes as they read them, but not the individual. Absolutely, Popak. And so what we try to do in Legal AF is try to sneak in some very technical law to improve your legal education. But let's get into really, you know, what's the, the, the state of our democracy right now, Michael Popak. I want to talk about this Joseph Biggs uh, motion to continue the trial, which it seems the DOJ is in agreement to continue the Joseph Biggs trial itself to December. I want to talk about that. But what the DOJ was not in agreement with was Joseph Biggs motion uh, to sever the case so that his case can be tried separately from Tario and the other Proud Boys um, and some of the other relief that Joseph Biggs was, you know, was was seeking. And the uh, DOJ was definitely against transferring the case to uh, Florida, where Joseph Biggs no, would like. I want to talk about Miami, why they want to go this there. case to be heard. Mm -hmm. So let's start with there, Popak. Why does this terrorist Joseph Biggs want to move the case from Washington, D.C. to Florida? And then let's talk about after that. Why does he want to continue this case to December? Why does DOJ agree that this mm -hmm. case should be heard in December? Let's start with Miami because they don't really have, other than Tario, who's from there, the others don't. So just to remind the legal AFers, these Proud Boys are joined together in an indictment under a conspiracy to commit seditious, uh, seditious overthrow of the, of the country. The conspiracy is important because Tario, this guy, Henry Tario, or Enrique, whatever his bullshit uh, moniker is, um, he was not in, Tario was not at, in Washington or at Jan 6th, but is tied together in the conspiracy to to do the violence, to do the sedition and the insurrection part of it. And uh, we'll talk about before we leave the segment, the uh, memo, the um, the uh, memo that was written 
for the Proud Boys, the 1776 returns nine-page memo, which ties them all together in the attack on Jan 6 and other attacks that they were going to do to occupy other buildings around the Capitol. That's what we're talking about. That's the trial. And Joe Biggs is one of the leaders. Why that name sounds familiar to legal AFers and Midas and Midas Mighty is because if they went on your your brother's uh, media network with you to, to, to watch the first day, Joe Biggs had a very big, no pun intended, role in the first day of the first hearing of the Jan 6 committee because he was the proud boy that had the interaction with the... Um, with Carolyn Edwards, the police officer who described the carnage of being attacked. And she described quite quite poignantly what Joe Biggs did on behalf of the Proud Boys on that day. So now, of course, his lawyers said, oh, he can't get a fair shake in D.C. He was just the star of the day one of the Jan 6 committee hearing, and he can't get a fair shake there. And interesting, as you pointed out in the opening and just now, Ben, he wants to move it not to just some random place. He wants to move it to Miami. Look, there's been plenty of plenty of reporting, including through the Midas Network, that Miami, the Republican Party in Miami, has been infiltrated by people like the Proud Boys. That there is, because of the demographic shift, because of the group that is in power in Miami, primarily Cuban-American and from other regions in Central and South America, are moving sharply to the right in their political views, DeSantis supporters. I was down there, as people know from prior podcasts, I was down there to be a poll watcher during the last election. Four years earlier, that was solidly for Obama. Four years later, I can't tell you, I can't describe to you the amount of vitriol, the amount of violent language that was on the streets against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in favor of Donald Trump in a way that was shocking to me, having lived there for 20 years to see the change. You know, uh, radio, uh, Latin radio is primarily Republican now. It's bashing Biden and Kamala on a regular basis. It's pro-DeSantis. So they think that with the Department of Motor Vehicle Records, they'll pull a better jury in Miami that that leans right, literally, in their political views, which will be a more hospitable forum for them of a jury of their peers than the, what they think is the liberal or uh, he in, the, in one of the papers, Joe Biggs's lawyer said the, the kooky, lovable um, people that live in Washington, D.C., almost like the the liberal effete um, you know, woke snowflakes in D.C. is what he really meant to say versus what he thinks he'll have a better shot in Miami. It, by the way, despite the fact that this is a Trump judge, you know, we 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 like to out our judges on this show. Judge Tim Kelly. By the way, he's no shrinking violet. Tim Kelly, even though I don't like the fact that he's a member of the Federalist Society, he went to both of our alma maters. He went to Duke for undergrad. He went to Georgetown for law. He was also the chief counsel for national security for the Senate Judiciary Committee. And he was affirmed 94 to two by the Senate when he became. So he is we may not like his political leanings, but he's ruled properly with things related to Trump in the direction that we think he should have ruled. He is not transferring this case to Miami. He's going to, there's been five cases already tried by the Department of Justice against Gen 6 insurrectionists in, in DC. Yes, they're five and zero, oh, but they're five and zero oh because of the overwhelming evidence against these people, including the future case against Joe Biggs. So prediction, 
motion for venue change denied. Um, and let's let's talk about your other questions. Let's talk about the uh, continuance request. But I agree with you, Popak. The venue change is definitely going to be denied. Um, and one of the bases it's also going to be denied is that if the argument is that so many people watched the hearing, uh, over 20 million people watched the hearing. You know, it's interesting that you know when they want to go on their own podcasts and try to you know, provide disinformation, right, to their echo chamber. They go, nobody watched it. But then this is the thing that they do when they go to actually in court and they have to testify under oath. Right. They go, so many people watch this that it's not going to be actually a fair trial. But the argument that the DOJ makes and the argument that Judge Kelly has also said before with previous requests that if this is pervasive information that is known to the entire country, whether you're in one venue versus the other, those same issues are going to remain. And the voir dire process, the jury selection process should be sufficient to ferret out which uh, jurors you know, would maintain a bias um, to make them not capable of being proper jurors in a specific case. You mentioned some other rulings by Judge Kelly. Judge Kelly presided over CNN versus Trump, right? That was the lawsuit about Trump's decision to revoke Jim Acosta's White House press credentials, denying him access to White House grounds. And then Kelly ruled that Acosta could return to the White House pending a trial. Um, so that was one of the decisions that he made, which was a decision against Trump. And then on December 28, 2021, Kelly also uh, denied uh, a motion to dismiss the indictment of, of Proud Boys as well, who were charged with conspiracy. So that's another ruling that he made. Now, in terms of the continuance, this was uh, we saw a filing by the DOJ where basically they said we're actually OK with it being moved to December. And the reason they give, Michael, is that. Um, they say that they're waiting on the transcripts from the Jan 6 committee, that they want to turn over these transcripts to they have an obligation to turn over these transcripts, you know, to the, 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 the defendants in this case, and that they kind of wrote a little bit of a nasty gram about the Jan 6th committee not giving them documents and not turning over the records. And there was a little tiff we actually saw this past week between the Jan 6th committee and the DOJ, co-equal branches of government, the executive branch and the legislative branch. Um, but really what the Jan 6th committee, the undertone is, is that um, you know, you're the DOJ, like you should have access. Aren't you doing this investigation as well? Why do we have things that you don't have? Even if we have these transcripts, even if we have these transcripts, you know, as a legislative body, we want to hold it close to the vest, what we have, but you're the DOJ, you have a grand jury, go subpoena these same people. You have the same ability to do what we're doing over here, but should they just be sharing this records with them? Pope? Yeah, let, let, let's talk. There's two cases today, two segments today where this becomes relevant. We're going to talk about Bannon filing a motion in limine to keep out the Jan 6 attack and the same issue. You know, Department of Justice lawyers are now having to appear in court and explain to the judges why they don't have the Jan 6 transcripts and video transcripts. Why is that important? You alluded to it earlier, because under a concept called Brady, based on a case, Brady material, which is material that could help the defense, has to be provided to the defense by the prosecution. And and so the defense is saying, and to be frank, they're not wrong. Hey, I want to see the 
the video of me, my client at the Jan 6th. I want to see the interviews that were taken about his participation. And the Department of Justice had a, has, has to have taken a sheepish position in and now two, uh, two court appearances, if not earlier, and say, we don't have them. And the judges are like, what do you mean you don't have them? Well, the Jan 6th committee is not giving it to, to us. Now, to your point, which is a problem. Now, what I've seen in the recent reporting is that the Jan 6 committee said they will turn them over to the Department of Justice, but not until, Ben, did you see this? Not until around July. I guess they want to get over their hearings before they turn over, because they don't want any leaks. They're doing their own thing. They're putting on a major hearing right now. So so July doesn't help some of these trials. So there's, there's a continued tension here. Department of Justice, let's make a couple of points here. They can't order and I, I mean, could they? No, I don't think they could subpoena successfully the Department of Justice, the, the Jan 6 committee to get it from them. So they're stuck and they know that. Now, to answer your question or ask, answer the question of Benny, Benny Thomas, don't you have these already? The answer we know is no. The Jan 6 committee is so far ahead in terms of development of their case, the thousand of interviews, the hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. We know the Department of Justice is at least six months behind because we know, yes, there's three grand juries or more impaneled in in Washington right now, but but they're playing catch up. The Gen 6 committee has been going on for over a year. So that can't be the answer. What do you think the res- what do you think the end result is? for the Jan 6 committee turning over with a ribbon tied around it, all of their materials, to the Department of Justice. Does it happen? When does it happen? I think it happens after they make their closing argument. Yeah, agreed. Um, you know, and I think it probably happens within, it's a lot of material. They're releasing the material to the public. When you watch these hearings and you see Benny Thompson say, we hereby release the deposition transcripts and make them part of the public record. He's not referring to just the clips that we're seeing. He's actually referring to making the full deposition transcripts available and part of a public congressional record and basically taking these as confidential documents and moving them into the public record. So they're doing that naturally right now as the process is taking place and moving these videos into the public record. But they're going to do it after their closing argument, after their statement, because here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, DOJ, we have made a case that is beyond compelling. Now the job is in your hands. Yeah, Here you go. Here's the records that you saw. And they want to sequence it that way to put the pressure on the DOJ to do the right thing. And and the judges, I agree with you, and the judges are just going to have to make a ruling that this this the Jan 6 committee information and data is not Brady material to be because, A, it's not in the hands of the Department of Justice. Obviously, it won't be for some time. Now, when the Department of Justice does get it, they will have to turn it over one by one to uh, defendants who request it if it goes to their culpability or 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 an attempt at a defense to their culpability, what we call exculpatory material at that time. But if they're if your trial and some of these trials have already happened, have happened already, you don't have you as a defendant can't say, oh, if I had only had some of that material from Jan six, it could have helped my case. It's over. 
It's over. It's not Brady material until it gets into the hands of the Department of Justice. That's what they said to the judge in the recent case involving Big and Big Bigs, and they're gonna they're gonna say the same thing in the Bannon case. We're gonna talk about next. And Popak, what was this filing? Touch upon it briefly by yeah. Zachary Rell, one of the co-defendants of Enrique Tario. This. 1776 returns document and i've seen different analyses and now different analysis done on this to see you know was this a this document like incredibly helpful to prosecutors is it not helpful to prosecutors and the 1776 return document basically is the one of the plans and the plots that the terrorist Proud Boys had to occupy the buildings on January 6th and to make their demands be heard and to shut down, you know, Congress. But the documents themselves don't actually talk about going into the Capitol. They talk about occupying and basically holding hostages in other buildings. Um, and so it's part of the development of their sedition. It's ultimately not the final piece of what they decided to do. Yeah, but- they called it audible on Jan 6th. And uh, but or or this was part of all the planning. So so in March of this year, just to continue our build of of information that we provide on the on the podcast in March, we talked about the the original indictment of Tario and five other co-conspirators, all Proud Boys. And in the March indictment and in the courtroom, the Department of Justice mentioned a memo that they had. And The New York Times did a whole report of it in March. And we'll, we'll, I'll post it on Legal AF uh, community uh, today, later today, in, in which they suggested that the memo was part of the plot and was the PowerPoint, if you will, that led ultimately to the tip of the spear, which was the Jan 6th insurrection and attack on the Capitol. It was it was an attack and a a um, um, infiltration, to use their words, of seven other buildings around the Capitol, all at the same time to be held and occupied by groups of 50 or more of the Proud Boys and others led by a Proud Boy in coordination. Sounds an awful lot like a conspiracy, which is what the government said when they brought the indictment. Now, in a very, I want to get your opinion on this as a trial lawyer, in a curious move, one of the co-conspirators decided to rip the Band-Aid off and actually file the memo in an attempt to move to dismiss the indictment against them, arguing that the memo is innocuous. The memo, there's no real link between Tario and my client, in this case, uh, Zach, uh, Zach Rell, R-E-H-L. This is the lawyer's argument. And if you look closely at the memo, which I've attached to my motion, all nine pages, it, yes, it says that the steps of the, um, of the plan are infiltration, execution, distraction, occupy, and sit in. But they're almost acting like, see, it's like a sit-in. It's like when college students don't like the food that's served in the cafeteria. So they go sit in the lobby of the of the dean. It's just like that. It's just, you know, fun and games, you know, just the way Jan 6 is portrayed by those like Jim Jordan who don't want to admit what happened. It's just a little, you know, hugging and sit-in and, you know, got a little bit out of hand. That's what they want to portray it as. So they made a tactical decision. I want to get your opinion on it to actually file the memo and say the memo's not that bad. It didn't talk about violence. It didn't talk about the overthrow. And um, therefore, 
Um, it, you know, there's no conspiracy. And even the, even the government's own document supports that. What did you think about that argument? And oh, I thought it's the about... stupidest move. Oh, it's right. the dumbest Thank move you. in there. I was like, it's, why are you the filing the memo in the history? Why? <laughs> you know, when if you're like, I'm glad this idiot terrorist did it because, you know, the more information that's out there is the better for justice. But if you're representing a criminal defendant in this case, you tell him to shut up. You don't give more information than right. you need to do. You have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Here's the you, memo I relied on. <laughs> you know, in, in a criminal proceeding, obviously, you know, here's what I want people to know, too. In a civil proceeding, if you take the fifth, it can actually be used against you as an adverse inference, inference uh, right. by not by taking the fifth and by not testifying in a criminal proceeding. If you take the fifth, you are not allowed to point out as the prosecutor that this person invoked the fifth. You're not allowed to show the video the way they did in January 6th and show the person pleading the fifth over and over and over again on stand. You can't do that in the criminal case, in the criminal proceeding, because you don't have to testify against yourself and you can't go up and make the argument as the prosecutor. Don't you think he's guilty or she's guilty? They did not testify and they're invoking the fifth and therefore they're guilty. You can't do that in a criminal prosecution whatsoever. So you as a criminal defendant should not be turning over these records that would incriminate you more. Um, and also, we know what happened on January 6th. But what this also goes to, Michael, is the disunity between these defendants, the different strategies. It yeah. shows they're sloppy, they're messy, they're kind of going at it with each other. You know, the other co-defendants were not happy. I, I would guarantee you that this was actually that this document was filed. They were probably like, yo, what the what is Rel fucking doing? I mean, what, what, Rel went rogue. What, what, what's Rel doing? Can I but go I'm to your point? He did, but it's the dumbest thing to do if you're a criminal I defendant. Totally agree with you. Can I go? Can I go to one one of your points and and kind of tease it out a little bit? What, uh, talk about Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate yourself. What is going on with the Peter Navarros and the John Eastmans of the world and Bannon who continue? in the face, staring down the barrel of indictment and criminal prosecution and spending a lot of time at Leavenworth, John Eastman continues to blog about evidence in the case against him and respond to what we're going to talk about next, the Ginny Thomas um, connection. He's blogging as of like yesterday about evidence that is against him taking an opinion or a position, which is back to your law of holes, continuing to dig his own grave. Navarro does the same thing. I got a book that I'm releasing, Judge. Please postpone my trial so I can go on a book tour. The book is going to be like manna from heaven for the prosecution because of all the crazy crap that's going to be packed into it so he can get paid, you know, his his royalties. And then and then you have Bannon who podcasts on a regular basis while he's out on bail. What what do you make of that conduct, which is completely against you and I would leave the representation of a client in a criminal setting if they continue to do that. Yes or no? Would you would you continue to represent that client if you couldn't control them that way? Absolutely. You know, and right. and to me, this goes to what Bill Stepien said about in his deposition testimony about team normal and team <laughs> not normal. What I want to be clear about is I don't believe that Stepien um, and the Trump inner circle was team normal, even though they view themselves as team normal. But nonetheless, they had at least a fear 
of the rule of law in the sense that they understood the repercussions, they followed the norms of what the law was and where they stopped was directly overthrowing the government, which is not exactly, you know, we should not Seem give normal. them kudos for, for, for doing that. But what we have here, why I reference that is you really see a decaying of the rule of law creep into, you know, that kind of team normal because team normal is not really normal anymore. So team normal is at a position that we would normally view as red alert, red alert. But then you have this fascist creep, this total disrespect of the law. And what we see with Bannon, what we see with Navarro, what we see with Meadows, and of course them working for the Trump cartel, we don't give a fuck about the law no more. The democracy, the courts, it don't matter because guess what? Donald Trump, you heard what he said at the faith and freedom, whatever they call that convention. We're going to get pardons. So all we need to do is we're going to talk shit. We're going to keep we're going to go all in on violating the law. Ridiculous. Well, not only that, we're going to taunt the law. We're going to taunt the judge. We're going to taunt the Constitution because that will curry at, give us more favor to get a pardon for Trump down the road because they're all in on him running in 2024 or a fascist like figure in DeSantis. And their view is, is that we're going to get pardoned. That's what so 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 screw the law. If we have any respect for the law, we're not going to get the benefit. That's why they're doing it. That's I why like they're that. funny. And they're also sick people. Like they're, you know, and, I, and and sick may give them, you know, too much credit. You know, these are really dastardly and despicable individuals who are the most un-American, unpatriotic people that exist. And they're criminals. And all they know how to do is to engage in criminality. And speaking to that, Popak, let's talk about Steve Bannon. Let's talk about, I always like to give a little bit of a teaser of who the judge is the same way. You talked about the prior federal judge overseeing the Proud Boys case in the district court in Washington, D.C., Timothy James Kelly. In this case, Bannon, it is Carl John Nichols, again, another uh, Trump appointee, which frankly made me a little nervous early on. And, and you knew about uh, Judge Nichols' background, too. And you've always said mm -hmm. that he's someone who also, even though he was appointed as someone who has a reputation of calling balls and strike. But where I was a little bit nervous, although I thought how could he possibly buy this argument from Bannon? Is this argument where Bannon was trying to claim executive privilege and he was relying on this DOJ memo and saying that the advice that I have, that the case should be dismissed against me because there's this DOJ memo that basically says if you work for the president and there's this executive privilege claim, you don't have to testify before Congress. And that was one of the arguments that he made, you know, to get the case dismissed, executive privilege. The other argument he said is that the January 6th committee is not legitimate. The third argument that he made to try to get this dismissed, which was rejected a long time ago, was I relied on the advice of counsel, which the judge says an advice of counsel defense is not a defense of a contempt of Congress uh, charge. So those were the arguments that he made. Um, fortunately, Judge Nichols rejected all of these arguments and said, as far as I know, Trump hasn't even invoked executive privilege with respect to this. And that's who has to invoke it. But, you know, it's it's ambiguous at best. And by the way, you were not 
You were a podcaster. You're not working for the president. They didn't subpoena you in your capacity as an advisor, which may be a close call if that's what the subpoena was, but it was your conduct on January 6th and the weeks preceding it and weeks thereafter. You are a podcaster. You don't get a podcaster immunity. You're going to trial, buddy. And then Steve Bannon filed a uh, motion in limine shortly thereafter. And a motion in limine is a pre-trial motion to exclude information. If you've heard the term motion in limine, weird word, could just be motion to exclude. I don't think, you know, we still use the term in limine, you know, one of those Latin terms that we use in court, but it's a motion to exclude evidence of like January 6th itself. So he just wants the testimony to be, I was subpoenaed for some random reason to show up in front of the <laughs> January 6th committee, but we can't talk about January 6th. Um, I want to get your views on it, Michael. Yeah. I do think that some of the motion in limine will be granted. I agree like, with you. What the judge is not going to allow in is for the DOJ to make the case and show the videos of Jan 6th and show the hang Mike Pence and show all of those things. I think that the DOJ is going to be permitted to give some background to the jury. We all know what happened on January 6th. You know, individual stormed the Capitol. We, we as the DOJ wanted to get information. We subpoenaed Steve Bannon because he was involved. Here's what we thought his involvement was in it. Yeah. He refused, limited to that. That's what uh, will likely be. I, I totally agree. And you have almost competing motions in limine. No, you have competing motions in limine. The government filed a motion in limine or to exclude because they don't want Bannon uh, going off like Bannon the podcaster attacking democracy, attacking Nancy Pelosi, attacking the legitimacy of the Jan 6 committee and putting all of these crazy thoughts in the jury's head, which is not part of a defense that Judge Nichols is going to allow. And he shouldn't be able to just, you know, be Steve Bannon, crazy podcaster on the stand and and have them have him pollute the jury or the jury's mind. So you got the government arguing that to your point, you're right. There are, even though I would love to fry this guy's ass with every piece of evidence possible, the federal rules of civil procedure, I'm sorry, the federal rules of evidence in this case, um, have a balancing test for evidence that is relevant, what we call probative of the uh, claim or the defense that's being uh, prosecuted or defended in the case, and, and any severe prejudice that could result if the, if the prejudice outweighs the probative value of that piece of evidence. So it'll, in other words, let me put it in lay terms like we like to do in legal IF. If that piece of evidence would blow the jury's mind, making them incapable of, of properly reasoning as the fact finder because of it, they can't get past that piece of evidence, you know, assuming it's not the only piece of evidence that proves that particular claim or defense, then under what's called a, four, a rule 401 Rule 403 balancing test, 401 being relevancy, rule 403 being prejudice outweighing relevancy, the judge has to do a test. There are certain aspects of the Jans, the carnage, to paraphrase the Capitol Police uh, officer about what happened on Jan 6, the attack on the Capitol and all of that. I agree with Bannon's lawyers. That's not relevant to him being found for willfully in contempt of Congress for not cooperating with the Jan 6 committee. So I think that gets excluded. I'll give a personal example. As people know from the podcast, I worked for a Wall Street firm that had a link, unfortunate link, a terrible link to 9-11. I won't go into the details, 
But we had, in cases that I handled for the company, we had the other side in federal court and otherwise make motions in limine to prevent us from even mentioning, even if it was relevant to the case, the fact that hundreds and hundreds of people were were murdered in 9-11 from the company on that particular day. And generally they were successful that we were not able, not that we wanted to do it to fuel the fan, fan the flames of prejudice against the other side by mentioning we're the company that that happened to. It's just part of the of the corporate history of the company. And usually we want to mention it at some point. And so we were unsuccessful in many of those cases because the, the courts are very leery about allowing these this kind of could be probative, but highly prejudicial, inflammatory material to go to the jury. I think he wins on that. He doesn't win on anything where the where they're bound and gagged the Department of Justice from telling the jury what is the Jan 6 committee? What is its role? What is its investigation? What is the scope of its investigation? This is all public record. This is all declarations establishing the Gen 6 committee. And they're going to be able to read from those. This is the scope of their authority. And this is what they did. They asked for, they commanded the testimony of Bannon under a subpoena. He refused. It's willful. And here's why. I agree with you exactly. Aspects of the motion in limine for Bannon are going to be granted if it doesn't go to the heart of the matter and it's deemed to be too prejudicial. And unlikewise, the government, I think, is going to win uh, the bulk of its motion in limine to, to gag Bannon from going off the rails in front of the jury and doing his 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 crazy clown show, you know, dumpster fire act in front of them. So I think that's how Nichols, who's a very you know sober person, is going to make sure that this trial stays on track in front of this jury. You also mentioned before Peter Navarro, his case is before Judge Amit Mehta, an Obama appointee who we've talked about. He ruled on the civil case denying the motion to dismiss filed uh, uh, that was filed to prevent the case from going forward against like the members of Congress who had filed the case against Trump and against others on January 6th for their conduct, their civil conduct in uh, causing the insurrection. So Judge Mehta is overseeing the Navarro case and Navarro pled not guilty on Friday, this this last Friday as well. And the court also entered a protective order preventing Navarro from uh, releasing records, uh, confidential records to the public. I want to talk about uh, pocket pardons have been a major topic. And of course, I want to talk about a summary of what took place at the Jan 6th hearing, give everybody a summary and give you Popak and my take on that. But first, I want to talk about our partner, Athletic Greens. This podcast is brought to you by Athletic Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really simple. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, work stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutritional areas. AG1 by Athletic Greens, the category-leading superfood product, brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody, keeping up with the research, knowing what to do, and taking a bunch of pills and capsules is hard on the stomach and hard to keep up with. 
to help each of us be at our best. They simplify the path to better nutrition by giving you the one thing that you all need. It's one tasty scoop of AG1. It contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. The special blend of high quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system effectively, replacing multiple products or pills with one healthy and delicious drink. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, this is for you, and it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, while taking, while making sure it all tastes good. And boy, does it taste good. I love athletic greens. It's super simple for me to use. I just take one scoop of the green powder. I put it in a cup each morning. I shake it up. I drink it. It has been so perfect for me. Before that, I would use all these random pills and vitamins and things that I would get um, at the grocery store or at my local pharmacy. None of that was working. Finally, I found this AG1 and I was like, great, all I need to do is drink this. I'm good for the day. I have all the vitamins that I need. And I felt incredible energy. I felt great. And I highly, highly recommend it. So join the movement of athletes, life leads, moms, dads, rookies, first timers, and everyone in between taking ownership of their daily health and focusing on the nutritional products they really need in the simplest manner possible. That's essential nutrition to make it easy. Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune support free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF and take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Go to athleticgreens.com slash legal AF. Michael, Pocket pardons. Everyone's saying, I know Trump gave pocket pardons. He must have given pocket pardons. Ben and Popak, can you please talk about what a pocket pardon is? A pocket pardon, just so everybody knows, it's never been done in the history of the United States. A pocket pardon is like a secret pardon. Uh, there are pardons that are announced publicly, right? Because that's the whole part, that's the whole concept of a pardon, that it's a public reprieve. Um, but this idea of a pocket pardon is, is there anything that is preventing a president from basically writing secret pardons that aren't announced, putting them in a vault, hiding them, you know, I guess in Trump's case, under the toilet bowl or wherever Trump hides his things or just and then saying, aha, there was a pardon. I pardoned Giuliani. I pardoned myself. These pardons existed. Um, this has been discussed by numerous constitutional scholars. The pardon power of the president is based on Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1 of the United States Constitution, which provides the president shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment. Just a reminder to everybody, the president does not have the power to pardon people for state offenses and state criminal acts, only federal claims, federal charges, and we've talked about this before, potentially, it's never really been challenged in a court, but like the pardon of Richard Nixon was a pardon for 
uh, conduct that he wasn't necessarily even charged for yet. Um, that was never challenged to the Supreme Court, but many constitutional scholars have argued that's probably okay to pardon someone for conduct that they hadn't, but it hasn't been actually litigated ever, you know, ever. Um, but this idea of a pocket pardon, a private secret pardon, it would seem to contradict what a pardon is, is what constitutional scholars say. The very essence of a pardon is something that's done publicly. But Trump has violated a lot of norms. You know, the whole idea before Trump about pardons was really that like an individual had to, for the DOJ, it was a process won by the DOJ, not by Jared Kushner, who testified at the Jansic that he, he was, was very busy with pardons at that time. Yeah, before it was the Department of Justice that dealt with pardons. And it was after an individual had I, you know, had served the time for a significant period of time. And then a number of years later, like at least five years after the individual had served his time, then it was, it could be begun as a consideration. So Popak, what's up here? Pocket yeah, well, you and, I, you and I are the constitutional scholars on legal AF. When I stroke my beard, that's when I'm going into my constitutional scholar mode. I have to agree with Larry Tribe, and I, I have to disagree with my somebody that I admire, uh, Lawrence, O'Don uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, who said, don't trust the list. There are pocket pardons. This is how this whole thing kind of started. Here's the problem I have with the concept of pocket pardons. Sounds great. It's very catchy, pocket pardons. Here's the problem with it. Pardons have to be any any event has to be memorialized in one of two ways. Would you agree with me, Ben? It's either in writing or it's, or it's oral. Okay. Absolutely. If it's in writing, it's covered by the Presidential Papers Act. He'd have to have produced it to the, to the National Archive. Can't, keep it, can't literally keep it in his pocket. He's the president. He issued a paper. There's no secret pardon paper exemption from the Presidential, Power, the Presidential Papers Act at all. So if it existed in paper he would have needed to provide it. Why? Because presidential papers are really, really important from a historical standpoint and from a record keeping standpoint. And so that we know what is the president's paper and what is not the president's paper, because it was created contemporaneously with the time that he was in office. Because on the way out, you know, when Nixon flew away in his helicopter, like he was leaving Saigon um, when, he, when he when he resigned, I, I'm sure there could have been a typewriter on that. But he's typing away, even though he's resigned, he backdates it. So to avoid that, there's a, you know, we cabin what are the presidential papers. So if it doesn't exist, let's assume now, let's take my theory forward. It doesn't exist in paper. The pardon, the, 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 the pardon for future conduct, for, for Ivanka, for Eastman, for Meadows, for the Congress people that were lining up banging on the door like one of those sci-fi movies where the rocket ship is taking off from an exploding planet. They all want to get on before it happens, you know, and they're closing that door, you know, to these people. Okay. Assume it. So it's not in paper. So then it's oral. Okay. So it's an oral pardon. I, Donald J. Trump, pardon you for all of your sins and all of your crimes against humanity and the United States constitution. Who's the witnesses for that? I'm, I'm now the Supreme Court of the United States. Okay, it's not in paper. Okay. And what happened exactly? Well, I was in the Oval Office. I was in the dining room with Ivanka and Meadows was there and I gave that pardon. So he's going to have to testify. The others are going to have to testify. I mean, so far, nobody's come out of the woodwork and said, I was there for a secret pardon. I, I, I heard of it. 
I, I was, and then, and then there's the credibility of that. This is why I think if, if any, if anybody tries to claim they got a pardon from the president, not in writing, or there's a first time in the history of the United States, an attempt by a president, a criminal president to pardon himself in advance. I think even this Supreme Court, even this Supreme Court would find that pardon having not been properly issued at the in writing by the time he left office to be invalid. What do you think? Oh, I agree with you. I think even this Supreme Court would find it to be invalid to even get there. As you mentioned, there would have to be this mini trial, if you will, about the circumstances surrounding it. And why would you think you needed a pardon? And you'd have to really get into the issues, which would ultimately kind of collide with Trump's ego that he claims that he did nothing wrong. So the essence of a pardon, as federal judges have said over and over again, is that there was guilt that you need a reprieve from. So to ask for a pardon means you were guilty Johnny of something Smith. underlying in the <laughs> exactly. And so that is where the rubber meets the road of Trump's ego and him having to say that he was guilty of the underlying crime. But would it shock me, though, for Trump to try it if he is charged and convicted to say, actually, ah, uh -huh, this is what I, you know, I gave myself. I gave myself the part before I left. Who did he give it to? I'm Who sure he, <laughs> I'm, I'm you know, all the constitutional mischief in the world. I'm sure Trump will attempt at that situation. But, Michael, I think your analysis is definitely sound. And I use the term constitutional mischief because we heard that word over and over again at the Jan 6th hearings uh, this past week. I want to talk about day two and day three of the January 6th hearing. So day two took place Monday, June 13th. And day three took place on Thursday, June 16th. On Monday, who were the witnesses? Ex-Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien, who was not able to testify live because apparently his wife was in labor. We still don't have information. Have you got information? Do we know if they Where's had the that baby? baby? Where is that it? baby? I don't know one way or another, so I don't want to. For all I... All I know is that I haven't seen no baby photos. Can yet. I make can I make something clear because it came up in a Twitter feed? We we and after 75 or 90 shows, we are not we are feminists. We are not anti-women. I am not attacking the mother Bill Stepien's wife when we make a joke about where is the baby. We're we're attacking the the character of Bill Stepien to have used the excuse of that, if it's especially if it's not true, to avoid having to give live testimony. Well, I just think if if you if you make that statement publicly, the public may want to know. I don't think in any other setting we should have to know, right? In this one setting where our democracy is on the line. And minutes before a hearing, we learn about that. The public has some interest to be like, all right, but where's the baby? And, and, <laughs> and let's be honest, the brothers and you, you may want to find out where they're registered and send a gift. Exactly. <laughs> um, ex, the ex-Fox News political editor, Chris Steyerwalt, 
testified in person. Attorney Benjamin Ginsburg, a Republican uh, constitutional lawyer, ex-U.S. Attorney B.J. Pack, Republican United States Attorney in the Trump administration, ex-Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt, who was a Republican. And then day three, Greg Jacob and Michael Lunig. Let's just take day two uh, first with all of those witnesses that they had there. I thought day two was incredible you know the the information that came out of day two i thought was uh you know i mean to me put day day one was nothing compared to day two but to hear from a fox a fox news you know and this person said look i was there for the news i was not the you know i was not there to play the hannity games and the that wasn't my role i took a great deal of pride in calling balls and strikes on elections. I was proud of the software we had. We knew that Trump lost. We called it first. And I was proud of that decision. And we were right in making that decision and that there was no way that Trump could have won. So that came from a Fox News person. Then attorney Benjamin Ginsburg, he was integral. He was the main lawyer, basically, who argued Bush v. Gore, you know, for Bush and argued cases in the past of uh, vote counting. And he basically said the whole process that these, you know, that these Trumpers even went about is not how you even argue voting fraud issues and that there's no way that with the way the votes were in the different states that you could possibly win those cases and that there was no election fraud in this um, in the 2020 election to possibly change the outcome in any way whatsoever. And that was the Republicans' main constitutional expert. Then you had B.J. Pock, the U.S. attorney from uh, Georgia, who said he looked into all the accusations that were made in Georgia, found none. And ex-Philadelphia City Commissioner Al Schmidt said there's no, Republican, there no voter. Republican, Republican Philadelphia Commissioner. Yeah. And said there's no uh, there was no fraud in Philadelphia. And when Trump used my name and tweeted out my name, um, the ramifications of that was I received death threats and my family's life was placed in jeopardy all as a result of this big lie. Michael, what did you think about that day? Uh, the day was was amazing. And and what um, what the Jan 6 committee is doing is using Republicans against Trump. That's why every one of the witnesses and every one of the clips is Republicans in the inner circle, Federalist Society, died in the wool Republicans. Stepien is currently the campaign manager, at least he was. He may not be after this week, but he was the campaign manager for the challenger to, to Cheney in a Trump supported candidate. Um, um, Miller, uh, Jason Miller. Who, who even when they don't announce a live witness, there's always these other clips that they use talking about really Rudy Giuliani being drunk on the night of the election and, and forcing Trump's hand or convincing Trump that he should declare that he won the election Two two different people saying that Giuliani was drunk on that day. Stepien and Miller, both Republicans, Pac uh, saying I resigned profile and courage because the president of the United States and his henchmen pressured the Department of Justice in Georgia to find voter fraud where there was none. And I resigned. The guy from Fox News, Fox News, an analyst, I don't know what his political leaning is, but he's working, implying his trade 
on the fascist network of Fox News said, I lost my job because I properly declared the election for Joe Biden against Trump. Republicans, these are Republican Republicans against Trump, showing that he couldn't possibly believe the bullshit and lies of the big lie. And this is all goes to criminal intent against Trump. And and Stepien, even though he gave us some of the most memorable lines so far, besides when we get to Judge Luddick on day three, which was team normal and and therefore team abnormal, Giuliani and team normal, it it shows you the insidious, insidious nature of what the Republicans were doing, even at the very end. Bill Stepien said, I'm a professional and I am ethical. And I didn't find anything that that Giuliani was doing or that group was doing. I didn't think it was ethical or professional, so I left. But he still normalized all of this until the fall of Saigon and he had to get out of there with a helicopter. He was there giving the imprimatur of normalcy, of nothing to see here, of Republicans are in charge and and Trump's got valid arguments until the very end. So he's complicit, even though he's He's after the fact, trying to cover himself in glory with I was team normal. You weren't. You were part of the conspiracy that kept the flames alive that led to the insurrection. And we'll talk about day three. So powerful day led by Republicans against Trump, whether they wanted to or not. And then the January 6th committee, in addition to these live witnesses, would play the deposition testimony of people like Trump lawyer Eric Hirschman. I love him. Eric, yeah, <laughs> Eric Hirschman's testimony was, you know, as blunt as it was saying that, you know, these people were crazy. They were insane. I told Eastman, you better find a damn good criminal defense lawyer is the best effing advice that I could give you. Stop on well, Hirschman I- for a minute. Let me tell you something about Hirschman. You may not you may not know or if you if you knew it, I'll tell it to the to the audience. Hirschman came from a law firm in New York that I know well and has always been a big supporter of uh, Trump. It's been Trump's law firm before he hired all these other law firms we've talked about at nauseum. He used to use Mark Kazowitz's firm, Kazowitz Benson in New York. The um, ambassador to Israel under Trump was a Kazowitz partner. Hirschman Kazowitz partner. He left a three or four million dollar partnership to go serve in the White House as White House counsel. These are not Democrats. These are not. These are people who are card carrying members of the Trump cartel, as you called it, and Republicans testifying against people like John Eastman and ultimately by extension, Donald Trump. And the best line, I know we've talked about it at nauseum, but I still love it, is when Hirschman in, in his video recording said he got a call from Eastman about Georgia and about we got to preserve the voting machines and 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 the fraud that happened there. And he said, are you out of your fucking mind? I, the only two words I want to hear out of your mouth next are orderly transition. Say it. And he made him say it. He made Eastman say orderly transition. And he said, I'm going to give you your best piece of advice. And that's the one you just said about go get yourself an effing criminal defense lawyer because you, sir, need it. Because he knew in, as, as an observer of the cr- cons- criminal conspiracy led by Trump that was going on to overthrow democracy. No, absolutely. Let's talk about day three on June 16th. You had Greg Jacob, former counsel to Vice President Mike Pence. Greg Jacobs was 
the top lawyer for Mike Pence at the White House at the time. And then you had Judge Michael Luddig, retired judge from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, who was also an informal advisor to um, Mike Pence around the January 6th events. Um, compelling testimony from both. To me, where Luddig ended, of uh, this is not just about January 6th. What this is really about is 2024. By the way, Judge Ludig's one of the uh, top conservative jurists, Republican jurists out there. And he's someone who's saying, this is our democracy's on the line right here. Um, he said, based on his entire review of the Constitution, of historical context, there was no basis whatsoever for any of the claims that Vice President Pence had the authority to reject electors or to delay the counting of electors and throw it back to the state legislature. And then Greg Jacob, who was the day-to-day -day person advising Mike Pence, said the same thing. He said that we looked every angle of this, you know, we tried to see, you know, this is where Greg Jacob, it's like, you know, you applaud them for doing the right thing, but Greg Jacobs and Pence were trying to find a way to actually delay the counting and throw it to the state legislature. But ultimately, they found that there was nothing and no bases to do it. And some of the most basic stuff that Greg Jacobs said when he was speaking with John Eastman, who was giving the advice to the president, is he said, look, don't you think that Al Gore would have just done that if if you know, or are you would you be OK if Al Gore did it? And would you be OK if Vice President Harris, Kamala Harris, did it to which John Eastman said, I would not be okay with that, but just do it here for Trump, which conceded that there was no basis. And then so, Greg Jacobs said, do you think you're going to win this argument in the Supreme Court? And John Eastman said, no, I think we'll probably we'll probably lose seven to two, to which I think he was talking about Thomas and Alito. Um, and then he, then he claims he changed it to, no, we would lose 9-0. I actually think it would probably be seven to two. I do yeah. think Alito and Thomas would probably side with Eastman, but nonetheless... They would they would lose. Eastman knew they would lose. Eastman knew the strategy was a unlawful strategy. And then the Jan six committee, this is where all these legal AFs tied together, going back to Judge Carter, say, look at what the federal judge who looked at this U.S. District Court judge from the Central District of California Southern Division, uh, Judge David Carter, when he looked at all of this, said that this was a coup in search of a legal theory. Yeah, so let's start. That's all great. I'm going to unpack just a couple of parts that I thought were the most interesting of what you said. Judge Luddig, as you said, is the rightest of right wing judges. He was known when he sat on the fourth, uh, fourth circuit. He wasn't a trial court level. He was a appellate court level. But his clerks went to the Supreme Court and clerked more than any other federal judge. It was known as his clerks were known as Luddigators. His name was Luddig. And the Lud he had 43 clerks, former clerks of his, go next to the Supreme Court. Wasn't and Cruz clerk. and Eastman his clerk? 30 out of the 43 that he sent to the Supreme Court clerked for either Antonin Scalia or Clarence Thomas. Eastman clerked for both Luddig that's why he was so pivotal in giving advice to the to Vice President uh, Pence in the last three days. He was only retained in the last three days to give cover to Pence to 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 back Trump off and not do not do his bidding for him. But Luddig Eastman clerked for Luddig, Eastman clerked for Thomas, 
And and Luddick basically was a feeder program on the Federalist Society to send clerks from his appellate court to the Supreme Court. So you couldn't think of a a more um, odd choice for the Jan 6 committee to use unless you knew what his testimony was going to be. And we knew from the beginning that he said, my former clerk, John Eastman, is full of shit constitutionally. He doesn't know what he's talking about. This is what this is what Luddick said in a tweet on the, the power of Twitter on Jan 7, giving Pence some cover and then wrote a memo for Pence in which he said, you are there is no role of Congress and therefore the Senate and therefore you as the president tempore of the Senate as vice president. There is no role other than the most ministerial role, unless it is clear from the voting that the that there are there isn't a majority winner of the Electoral College. Then it gets thrown to the House of Representatives. So Luddig's position is is unique among the GQP, which is. There's no role for the Senate in this. You just raise your hands and you certify and you are done. You are not to do anything else. You don't delay 10 days, like John Eastman said. You don't throw it to the House because you feel like it or you like the you, you want to help the, 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 the president who just lost. You don't do any of that. Um, that's not what the Constitution says at all. And Michael Luddig had the most powerful testimony because he said point blank that the that Donald Trump presents a clear and present danger. Think of those words, clear and present danger to democracy and will continue to as an ex-president by challenging the legitimacy of the election, by claiming that Mike Pence should be hanged for doing something that would have been criminal and unconstitutional. To have Michael Luddig, of all people, if you would have told me three years ago, four years ago, or a year ago, he would be the star witness on day three, Michael Luddick, I'd say, are you crazy? That's the one judge I never want to face in any of my cases because of his right wing positions. But when but that is the power of the Jan 6 committee in its hearings, they're not using people that are independent, people that are democratic, evidence that can't be refuted. They're using Republicans against Republicans. This is the this was the 11th commandment of Ronald Reagan. A Republican shall not speak ill of another Republican. They are using the 11th Amendment of Ronald Reagan against Donald Trump in, in such an powerful and impactful way that, yes, the Department of Justice is going to have to wake up and start prosecuting people like Donald Trump. And I'll leave you with this. To the extent this is partisan, it's partisan in favor of Republicans because <laughs> the only people who have testified are Republicans. The only witnesses are people who I would disagree with on every issue other than the fact Lunch. that insurrectionists <laughs> shouldn't storm the Capitol building and try to hang the vice president and overthrow our democracy for a piece of crap like Donald Trump. And that's why this isn't about Democrats versus what Republicans used to be. It's about people who love democracy against this MAGA cult movement. And we saw the development of this MAGA cult movement with the Tea Party. We saw it with the Sarah Palin strand. We saw it further metastasize under the Obama administration, you know, when the Republicans were spurring it on. But see, now they've created this, 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 horrible plague that they can't control. 
Yeah, it's the, go- it's ne- the golem. We have it in our, in our religion. We have something called the the the, the golem. They who which is created out of incantations and magic, and then it ends up killing everybody in the village uh, because literally they can't control it. And you have currently the only people who continue to go along with this big lie, you know, other than, you know, this MAGA base, which is a significant base of tens of millions that represents about 25% or 30% of the United States are the elected Republican officials who are now scared shitless of that base or who want to try to harness that power to be these cult-like figures like Trump. That's what they want to do and that's how they want to use it. So here we have this unity of pro-democracy against the creep of fascism. It couldn't be more binary than what we're seeing right now on display at the Jan 6th. And as we hear about, you know, we heard about the hearing, confidential informants within the Proud Boys said, no, no, we were going to try to murder Mike Pence if we had the opportunity. The, the noose that was out there was to be used against Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi. And then with the elected Republicans, the Ted Cruz's and uh, the Jim Jordan's and the Gates, when they look at that and go, huh, who cares? Not big news. Boring. Just shows you how far this current Republican Party has fallen from what the great values, what the great ideals are and what this country stands for. We had a lot of news to unpack on this episode of Legal AF. Thanks for sticking with us as we went through all of those issues. And oh, I I know I teased Ginny Thomas. I'll just tell you what the Ginny Thomas thing was just super, (laughs) super quickly. Um, You know, there's more emails and messages from Ginny Thomas to John Eastman. Um, uh, We already know that she's been reaching out to the legislatures like in Arizona. We know that she was involved in um, putting together these fake electoral slates. And finally, the January 6th committee has sent a letter to her saying, we want to have a conversation with you. And so we'll keep you updated on all the Ginny Thomas. It's just so absurd that you have a Supreme Court justice's wife who was integrally involved with that Supreme Court justice, we know, as part of their uh, political leanings and their involvement. It wasn't just like, oh, well, we're going to follow not not today, but we're going to follow Eastman, Thomas and her husband. And by, on that last note, you just said she, she went on some right wing uh, news organization on the night on one of the days of the hearing and said she'd be happy, happy to come before the Jan 6 committee. Let's see. Welcome to the Jan 6 committee, Ginny <laughs> Thomas. I, I, don't, I don't think that you will be true to your word. Everybody, thank you for watching this and listening to this edition of Legal AF. I'm Ben Micellis. That's Michael Popak. Check out Midas merch at store.midastouch.com. Store.midastouch.com. Special thanks to our sponsor, Athletic Greens. We'll see you next time on Legal AF, delivering the most consequential news to you each and every week. Ben Micellis and Michael Popak signing off. Special shout out to the Midas Mighty.